Providing insight into healthcare from a multidisciplinary approach, this is the Fostering Wellness Podcast. I'm registered massage therapist Matt Wells, a rehab professional, joined by my co-host, Joel Foster, a psychotherapist and mental health professional. Let's get better together. And welcome back, everybody, to the next episode of the Fostering Wellness Podcast. Today, I'm joined with my co-host, Joel Foster, as usual. Hello. And today, we're going to be talking about some interventions. Uh, We're going to be continuing our uh, Quick Look series. And so with this episode, we're going to be talking about specific techniques or, like I said, interventions that we would use normally with people. Um, Maybe not like with everybody, but just some insight into how both of our like clinical expertise and... Uh, treatment could look if if we're to use these specific techniques yeah um but before we get into that joel how was your week good i actually have a fun story to tell tell um recently when i was doing some work the uh, the apartment is finished i don't know how many episodes it's been that i've been talking (laughs) about the apartment but it's finally done so good congrats to me congrats uh thanks and the so the um, tenants in now, but just before did we had, we were switching out some of the, what is it that adjusts the temperature? Thermostats. Yep. Yeah, you can see where this is. One of those things. This, yeah, <laughs> this story's not going to go well, or you can tell right away. Um, and so my father had showed me how to do like basic electric work. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I had a general idea. I had done all kinds of switches and things like that before. Right. Thermostats are not the same. They also don't run on the same breakers as all the other circuitry, Ah. which I did not know. So, (laughs) in the midst of switching one of these out, when I thought I had the breaker off and silly me didn't check, I electrocuted myself. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. How did that feel? Um, Not good. (laughs) Jeez. Would not recommend. Um, it's good one, 240 volts. Oh, okay. So it was up there. Do you have any burns or anything? I have, I had a, a little bit of a, I can't remember what finger it was. I'm attempting to show Matt. Um, it's, it's pretty much healed up there now, but there was a bit of an entry, oh, okay. an entry burn. Yeah. From, from, cause I touched it with these two fingers. Just like a little hole. I was trying to pull the thermostat down to see the wires on the inside and get my nose in there you right know, which is good i didn't do that oh my god <laughs> yeah that is horrific anyway so obviously i jumped back and yelled in pain yeah um pain stimulus this hey. was it nice nice <laughs> and uh you know uh, carrie and, and her mother were down they were like what what's going on i was like oh i just electrocuted myself <laughs> No big deal. They're like, you all right? I was like, yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're convulsing on the floor. It's all good. Yeah, so uh, I had my first experience with getting, like, I guess what we would classify as severely electrocuted. <laughs> I, mean, I like licking a battery, man. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, no, that is uh, that is wild and yeah. scary as hell, man. Yeah. Um, funny story. We had something similar happen here when we Ooh, first bought the house. Okay. All right, tell us. So this house had, like, old knob and tube wiring that's not, like, being used. It's just oh. still here. So we were kind of just, like getting rid of some of that and we noticed some old wires from like old landlines that we don't use so we were like getting rid of some of the cords downstairs and sure. cleaning up the area um we came across a cord we were like okay yeah this is like part of the the phone cord and everybody was like okay so she she cut it my partner oh god and turns out that controlled the heat for the entire upper floor <laughs> and we didn't realize that for a year <laughs> it was she like, didn't get like electrocuted or anything like that just we we had the uh, yeah we she, oh you actually turned off the electricity yeah ah, smart yeah just in case smart but um yeah no electrocution luckily but we were realizing like over the past year why it's upstairs so also cold no heat. and we, it's not like the thermostats here run on the electrical power it, it runs on batteries it's just the actual thermal control comes from that so we were turning up the temperature not knowing that it wasn't doing anything and then uh, her stepdad came over and found the wire and was like why did you guys did you guys cut this <laughs> yeah he was like you were complaining it was cold right we we're like yep he was like it's because you idiots <laughs> 
the temperature control to the entire upstairs of your house. You're lucky, like things like didn't get worse. Yeah, and really so we were though. like, okay, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty fair. That's wow. Fun. Yep. Wow. And uh, fun so story. That's, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so well, I guess the moral of the story is don't call us if you need any handiwork done. Well, actually, <laughs> depends what you depend define as handiwork because I'm a massage therapist. So. Oh wow! Hey, wow! Yeah, wow! Yeah! Wow. Yeah! Yeah! yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're going to be talking about interventions and treatments and stuff. Sure, Joel. Yeah. Well, I, I guess mine's more of a broad therapy, but it has become such a staple now in psychotherapy and in other areas as well i would suggest that you use it matt um that i i would just consider it almost uh i was listening to somebody talk about it and basically they were suggesting there's so much evidence and everything behind it that to not use it would almost be the the equivalent of malpractice oh wow and, and that's rogerian theory Therapy. Rogerian? Rogerian. Roger. Roger. Carl Rogers. Rogerian oh. therapy. It's also called client-centered or I prefer person-centered, but by preferred, I mean I interchange them all the time. Client-person-centered therapy. So it's the idea that you work from the client's perspective and kind of just what we've always preached. Right. Anyway, this, which, and it's funny because... It's something that we just take it for granted, especially you and I, that we just take for granted, especially... Well, yeah, I didn't yeah. even know that there was a name associated with it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, and that you don't really think about it, but this wasn't developed until like the 1950s. So Carl Rogers, um, I'm going to see if I can remember the numbers off the top of my head, I think he was born in like 1902... He died in, in like 1987. So he worked, I, I think most of his big work came within the 50s until his death in the 80s. And uh, it was really, so th- it was like um, this movement, Matt, in therapy toward a more humanistic approach. Right. Um, so you got, you know, I'm going to focus mostly on the, the what I'll, I'll call it client-centered therapy. Um, you got like existential therapy, which I, I want to talk about in another episode. You got, you know, I've, I've mentioned that, I think I mentioned the feminist therapy. Yeah. Yeah. To you before, um, all these therapies that, um, and, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs actually was kind of developed in this humanistic approach where, uh, the, the overall or over, overarching goal of a humanistic approach is self-actualization which is basically reaching your potential understanding your potential and how to get there and reaching it right Uh, so and and if you look at maslow's hierarchy of needs it's the the uppermost once all your basic needs are met it's your uppermost need for what would be considered living a healthy lifestyle so carl rogers developed this therapy and some of the cornerstones of the therapy are, uh, well, e- even just the language that's used. Like, it wasn't until his work around his time that he suggested switching from patient to client. That sort of language where instead of labeling the relationship, the therapeutic relationship, as expert and patient... Mm-hmm. Which quite often you'll see now in like the medical field, it's, you know, if you go to the hospital, you're considered a patient, yeah. right? Uh, and that's the way it used to be in therapy as well, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so he suggested changing it to client um, because it wasn't about him being the expert. It was about them being, the client being the expert, Right, so you didn't want to have it framed in that same way. Where if you go to your doctor, you go to the doctor as an expert, and you know he kind of tells you what you have to do and guides you and stuff like that. Right. His therapy was based on letting the client go where they go, Mm -hmm. and kind of guiding. And you know some of the key pieces, like I was saying, are uh, like unconditional positive regard. Right. You always look at. The client from from a positive perspective like you give them that unconditional positive regard because 
the, the whole basis of humanism and that humanistic uh, theory is that people are inherently good, right? And any acts that are considered negative come from uh, some sort of incongruence, uh, which I'll talk a little bit more about in their, um, in their lives and in their mental health specifically, which led to them doing bad things to, to simplify it. Right. Like a computer virus. Yeah, exactly. Right. So something would kind of throw them off. So, um, incongruence would be kind of related to vulnerability in you. We talked about vulnerability before Matt, but, Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about vulnerability in that there, there's something going on in their lives that they don't understand. Right. Right, vulnerable in that way. You mean like they don't understand it as in like it happens outside of the conscious mind? No, and, and I'll hit on that now in a second, Matt. Not necessarily. I won't okay. say no. That, that was a bit harsh. Right. It, uh, not necessarily. Okay. Um, it, it could just be that there's something going on there in their life. Something's happening, but they don't understand the full, uh, I guess, like the repercussions right. okay. in their yeah. life. Right. So it's something that's unknown. It's not necessarily subconscious or unconscious, which is where psychoanalysis and behaviorism focus. And I'll, I'll touch a little bit on that, Matt. Um, but so what, what Roger suggested, um, uh, you know, was, was that you had to get to this place where you, well, I was talking about vulnerability, but also away from anxiety. So vulnerability anxiousness and, and anything like that depression anything that left you in that vulnerable state mm-hmm. um, what he would consider incongruence right right you're not really understanding what's going on you're it's kind of this uh, you know what your experience is considering where you, uh, um, compared to where you want to be okay. you have this idea of you know an ideal life and you have this idea of what's going on in your life and when it kind of meets in the middle is congruency, where you're kind of... That self-actualization that I was talking about. Right. Um, and so I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that, that psychoanalytic and that behaviorism piece, because that's almost what he was opposing when he developed this therapy. Um, it wasn't like a direct opposition where he said, don't do this, do this. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, well, you, sh- this seems to be a good practice. So uh, you think of like, you know, Sigmund Freud mm-hmm. and some other practitioners like B.F. Skinner and some popular therapists from like old school, you know, uh, philosophical, uh, not philosophical, psycho- analysis uh, psychoanalysis. Yeah. yeah. And, and those schools of thought. That was a expert-patient relationship. They would come in, they would focus on things happening in the subconscious, in the unconscious, tell the patient what was going on and how to fix it. Yeah. Right? So Rogers was like, well, you know what? I don't think that's fair. And he suggested that there's no amount... Okay, I'm going to paraphrase very poorly, but the basic gist of it is that Uh, No amount of book knowledge will amount to the experience that somebody has, right? That lived experience. Right. You know, so when a client comes into me and sits down, I can have all the book knowledge I want, but it will never match up to their life experience, what they've gone through, what they've tried, what's hurt them, what hasn't hurt, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and so he was focused on that. And so he was very much about like the, the leading, not, not leading questions, sorry, probing questions and uh, in a very general sense, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mostly like self-reflection or not self-reflection, sorry, just reflection of whatever the client's saying. Right. Right. And doing so in an empathic way. That's one of the key pieces. The un, uh, unconditional positive regard, mm-hmm. right? The... Being uh, empathetic, empathy was huge uh, in, in his therapy, um, suggested that uh, practitioners needed to be in some sort of congruence, right? So this idea that we aren't in a vulnerable or anxious state, 
are in a congruent enough place where we can uh, almost, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but congrue with the client. <laughs> right. Probably not. But you know it what works. I mean? Like you kind of line up with them in, in that empathic, uh, empathetic way. Right. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I could go on and on about it. Like I said, this is a big one and it's been well researched and there's a whole lot still to discuss but I guess getting down to the nitty-gritty of how it looks and how it's practiced it's all about the reflections about using um, empathetic words and statements to ensure that the client feels safe and comfortable in therapy um, there's been studies suggesting that you, you could almost correlate how well therapy worked in terms of, um, you know, people dropping out um, or, and uh, rating skills and stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of stuff used um, between, you know, how well they thought their uh, clinician or their practitioner knew them. Yeah. Right. Versus if they didn't know them at all, there was that correlation. Right. Yeah. Um, the less they knew them, the more likely they were to not continue with the therapy. Yeah. Um, so it's so like I remember even just going through my class, Matt. It was just state. It was like the, almost the underlying therapy for uh, everything else. It's like, oh, you know, here's cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. But you practice. You still kind of practice it from that person-centered practice. Yeah. Right. Here's like that's. Ba- it sounds like that's like how you would frame. Anything that you do. Yeah. Where, like, you could take any specific type of therapy, like a CBT. Yeah. Um, or, like, anything. And just, you have to frame it within the language and, like, thought process of, like, client-centered care or Rogerian theory. Rogerian, yeah. 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 That's cool uh, that you brought that up because that's, this kind of stuff that you're talking about is stuff that is, like you said, taken for granted, especially yeah. in, like my field and like related fields like musculoskeletal rehab because the current evidence supports that language and when i go on uh like social media or on pages or even doing when i'm doing courses that i pay for under like certain like uh organizations for rehab and i'm doing like continuing education all of it says that stuff Mm. and it's always like the person's lived experience is more important than like what you can learn through like academia yeah and learning how to translate someone's lived experience into what you learn from academia is Mm. really how you would approach rehab from a not only like an empathetic state but like current evidence because it's funny you mentioned like um uh how you can line up someone's expectations of their rehab or like their recovery with like how well the person knows them yeah because there are actually similar studies done in uh physical rehab oh okay Um, that's interesting yeah so and it's not just rehab but like even just the biomedical world of like going to a physician's office or like a rehab professional yeah where they would ask clients or they would measure uh client success rates with the things that they perceive to value the most yeah okay and routinely in those types of studies uh at the top of the list one of the top uh things is uh, do you feel heard do you feel listened to yeah. beyond like ha- what the person in front of them knows like the professional so yeah. uh whatever you learn in school or whatever you learn like you know or beyond yeah that academic knowledge isn't as important to the person as whether or not they feel heard or listened to which is uh, super important and it's something that I try to do but it's in, it's cool to hear like where that originated because I had no idea yeah that it actually came from one specific person I thought it was just like a collaborative like, yeah thing, no that's cool that's yeah really cool. and I guess you know it, not all of it was from right him specifically but certainly he he was the pioneer for that for right. client-centered therapy when you say it's the same as Rogerian therapy like it's Right, you know, you you had these other humanistic. What one of my, you know, favorite psychotherapists was Urban Yalom. He practiced from the existential point of view, um, and like he he would he pioneered some of that too. Like storytelling was big in his uh, therapy and, and getting the client's story and hearing their, but also sharing your story, and, and so you can see sort of that that same, I'll say, humanistic philosophy where 
your your understanding of the client is that they're a good person who's just in a state of incongruence, right? There's something going on in their life that's just causing anxiety and vulnerability, and it's it's throwing them all out of whack, right? right? So you think about you know the implications of that for say something like addictions, right? Think about the you know even just even still now, Matt. You talk about addiction, and uh, so often people are still vilified for that, mm-hmm. right? Um, for drinking too much or into drugs or, you know, and that that whole idea works toward that, to building that idea that, you know, it's not that they're purposely going out and doing a bunch of heroin because they hate all the people they love. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's about them having a, a, a serious medical condition and, you know, a mental illness that mm-hmm. they need help with. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, there's, I, I won't claim that there's, you know, a, a whole lot of research into that, you know, the same efficacy that you might get out of a CBT treatment Mm-hmm. Or a DBT treatment for somebody with dialectical behavior therapy with somebody who has uh, addictions. But, the, again, it just underlies the therapy. You know, if mm-hmm. you have somebody come to you with an addiction and they open up about that, and you say back to them, that's got to be really tough. Mm-hmm. That's going to be really hard. Right? Then it opens up a whole gateway of connection. Uh, a therapeutic relationship is cornerstone to client-centered therapy. Yeah. Um and just such an important practice, right? We got a spicy question for you. Sure, I love spicy questions. Okay. Um, so this framework of having the person in front of you lead, well, won't necessarily 100% lead, but really take the reins of their own recovery yeah. and you're there to support them, that type of client-centered care. Do you think that's the reason why, um, or like one of the main reasons why uh, life coaching has become super popular mm. because in a traditional like in most people's minds maybe it's like that archetype they have in mind that could be wrong or something like that where they picture themselves in a psychologist or a psychological counselor's office or like psychiatrist's office and they feel like a patient mm. they don't feel like a client they don't feel like they could take the reins because they feel like the person in front of them knows so much more that they almost feel a lot smaller than the other person. Yeah. And so life coaching is less of an intimidating environment because it's like someone like you or me. Yeah. It's like the average person who happens to have a certificate from somewhere. Yeah. It's like dad on the bench coaching you for hockey. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know? It feels like <laughs> almost like a friend environment yeah. or like a non-intrusive one, a yeah. non-threatening one. Um, but yeah, what do you think? I, I think that's really interesting, and, and I'd be curious to know, like, to, if there's any studies on that, like, if yeah. there's ever been any research into, you know, why people are choosing life coaching. I mean, nothing nothing against it. No, know? it's still a um, relatively new thing, too. Like, it is, yeah, yeah. yeah. At least you know, popularity I've of it. done a bit of research into it myself, and, and the whole idea of it seems... Again, like it, it almost it seems like a person centered, you know, yeah. because they're coming to you. I'm going to help you coach you through your life. Yeah. Um, now, I haven't actually experienced life coaching Neither have I. myself, so yeah. I don't know how direct of it is. And I'm sure it's different from each person who is a life coach. Yeah. But the fact that they use the word coach instead of like a life treatment. Yeah. That's a different framing of it. Yeah. But, uh, but you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, build on your question and come back with my own question, Matt. Do you, I wonder if it's, you know, you think about what a coach does, the coach draws up the plays, right? Mm -hmm. And tells you where you need to be. What you do from there is kind of, you know, your own thing, right? But if you follow outside of that play, I'm thinking, you know, maybe specifically of, you know, like team sports, maybe that's my bias, but... Certainly, even if you were, you know, playing tennis or something like that, if the coach told you to play a certain way and you fell out of that, mm-hmm. certainly they'd come back and be like, hey, you didn't do that right. Or if you supersede their expectations, like yeah. a Michael Jordan or like a superhuman effort. Sure. Uh, or and not they, even a superhuman effort, but you make yeah. a play that's off the books, but it works out incredibly well. Yeah. You could be celebrated for it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so I guess my question was, do you, 
do you think maybe part of that popularity is that not necessarily what's the right wording for this Matt where you you it's not fully person-centered either because you give the reins up a little bit Mm -hmm. right and you go to this person and they're going to kind of tell you but but that's kind of in opposition um it's really interesting now that you know I kind of say that out loud because right. you're kind of suggesting that it's not as much of an expert position, right? It's because it's just a coach, but certainly you go to a coach to get that direction too. Yeah, it's right it's, rather than if you like went to the doctor. Yeah, you're like doctor, I want you to hear me. Yeah, right. But then are also people enjoying that direction? Or are they looking for something more empathetic? Mm. And if so, then would they prefer that counseling if they understood it from uh, that person-centered perspective? Yeah. No, it's uh, it's interesting to think about. I guess like with when you go to a physician's office or like a, like a professional mm. and uh, you get that concrete piece of paper that's like a prescription or like something that they tell you maybe it almost it's put up on a pedestal by the person versus like a plan that a coach would give you maybe it's a bit more it's a bit more of a jumping off point or like it's a bit it's almost like jumping into the deep end for some people maybe Mm. versus like a coach it's like okay well this plan can change like on the day like i don't like it so the coach will work with me that type of thing yeah okay versus if you went to a physician and they gave you a prescription or like Maybe you're trying out a therapy and then... It's a bit more rigid. Yeah, the person's not going to be like, I don't want that drug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's not working for me. Yeah. I want a different one. Why not? That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is interesting. Um, anyway, I think we could go on about that forever, but I'm interested to hear what your intervention of the day is. Um, mine? So you went super general, which is cool. Yeah. I love that, learning about that, because I was actually... Very informative. Good, I'm glad. Unlike our normal episodes. No, yeah, no, not informative no, at no, all. No, it's good. Um, mine is like super specific. Okay, so sure. like I love it. a type of thing that you can incorporate within a treatment. No. Oh, okay. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is a form of movement that I would normally use for rehab settings, uh, but you can also use it in performance settings. And uh, how I would normally describe doing it. Uh, yeah, you can basically fall in one or two camps, rehab or performance or like somewhere in between. Sure. And so it's isometric movement. Isometric movement. Could you break the word down for us that don't know what iso means? I know what metric means. Uh, it just represents a movement that is static and held for long periods of time. Okay. So the ideal uh, example that most people would be familiar with is a plank. Oh, uh, okay. So you're engaging the musculature without moving it. Gotcha. Um, the opposite is isotonic. So isotonic is just loaded movement through range of motion. So that's pretty much anything you think of. Like, like be a squat, a deadlift, bench press, push up. I was thinking of plank, and then the opposite of plank would almost be not necessarily a push up, but yeah, it would add that extra range of motion. Yeah, yeah. Isotonic. 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 Yeah. So isotonic is movement. Isometric yeah. is still. Okay. Cool. Uh, but you can also incorporate isometrics within isotonics. But we'll talk about the other one. Some other time. Possibly. Sure. Sure. Um, Sounds good. But isometrics. Um, so the reason why they're good for both performance and rehab and why I really like using them, like nine times out of ten, if someone comes to see me, I'm going to give them some isometrics. And okay. uh, that's not the same for isotonics, the movement one. Oh, okay. So um, you, what I'm hearing is you, <laughs> what I'm hearing, Matt, is that you tend more to the iso isometrics that, that become that's more of a steady practice uh it's it's more of a a type of intervention that i will give to people who come to see me in a rehab setting okay so okay, rehab first. first yeah so for some people that uh, don't know i also do online strength coaching for some athletes yeah. and like general population who just want to get stronger so if you're coming to see me with that you're probably not getting any isometrics Yes. Yeah. So that's where the the difference lies is I tend to use isometrics more for rehab. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about it today is just to discuss some reasons why. Because if we look at the literature surrounding which is better for pain, 
there's actually no one better or worse. So we, there has been studies comparing isometric rehab plans versus isotonic rehab plans and long-term there's no difference. Okay. You can do either or and get good results. Interesting. But there is a reason why I like using isometrics over isotonics at first sure. for rehab. So you know, usually when people come to see me, uh, it's in a place where they either have a new injury and they need some help with it, um, or it's somebody who's never seen me before who's dealing with an injury after so many years, months, or whatever. And so isometrics is probably the easiest thing you can do to get someone loading their movement so loading meaning adding like extra effort engaging the musculature beyond just moving it throughout a free range of motion like moving your elbow and just in mid sure um the reason why i like to do isometrics and load the movement as opposed to just get them do normal range of motion exercises is because it allows a some semblance of challenge in a non-threatening way Mm. So you can take, for example, somebody who has shoulder pain, yeah. right? Let's say they have pain reaching their head up over their, or reaching their arm up over their head, right? And uh, yeah, reaching her head up over their arm. That's, yeah. that's there always. Yeah, so that's that's yeah. always the You're case. You're doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you have somebody who has trouble reaching their arm up over their head, and they are afraid of putting their arm up overhead, as most people would be, if you're in pain and you have pain with a specific movement, you probably feel a bit of fear doing it for making it worse. Yeah. Or you've been told maybe from somebody else that you've seen or friends, family, that like social input, that it's probably bad for you to do because there's pain. Mm. Um, We know that that's not necessarily the case, but it's a whole lot harder to convince somebody to do something if it's painful, even if it's going to help. Sure. So imagine that same person who has a hard time reaching up over their head. What I would do normally in clinic is I would get them to reach up overhead until it gets uncomfortable, not painful. Okay. And then we know what kind of range of motion we're working with. At that point, all we got to do is just apply a little bit of pressure over their hand at the point where they feel uncomfortable but not pain. And it allows them to challenge themselves in a non-threatening position. Mm. It's actually harder to push up against resistance in that position physiologically than it is just to reach up over your head. Yeah. yeah. So if you can add that challenge and have them come out on top, it allows them to get that input of safety. Mm. It's actually safe for me to do this action because I'm putting in more effort right now than I was when I was putting up, putting my arm up over my head yeah. and getting pain. Yeah. And usually that input of safety is enough to change the pain slightly. Okay. And once that happens, that reframes that movement entirely for that person because now they feel like they can reach up overhead and be fine. Yeah. But you get them to do that over the course of like, let's say a week. Let's yeah. say you come up with a plan. We're going to do this isometric, meaning we're going to stop that range of motion before it gets painful. And I'm just going to get you to put your hand over the top of your other hand and just push up into it at that range of motion where it's fine. You're going to hold that for like 30 to 45 seconds, like go crazy with it. Add in that resistance for a long period of time and actually feel fatigue. Mm-hmm. We know it's not painful. We know you're doing fine. And then after a week of getting that input constantly every single day for long periods of time, like we're talking 30 to 45 seconds, that's a long time to hold a contraction. Imagine mm-hmm. planking for 30 to 45 seconds. Mm, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough for a lot of people. Um, and you can apply that to any part of the body. But anyways, like going back to that example, at the end of a week of repeating that multiple times over and over and over, it's likely, you know, I'm giving the example of a week, but this can be any like time frame depending sure. on the injury. But Let's say in this case it's a week. Getting the person at that point to reach up overhead is very easy mm. because they've been working out their shoulder. They haven't just been doing arbitrary movement, like ranges of motion that doesn't really have any meaning to them. It's something that they know is targeting something that's very painful. Yeah. And that reframing is just, it allows you to overcome that, uh, that fear and that anxiety. And it has physiological benefits for pain, like turning that down a bit. So... At that point, you can start to move the needle over to movement, and that's when I would incorporate the isotonics, like the actual move range of motion. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I think it's valuable to use isometrics at the start is because, one, exercise-induced analgesia, so that pain reduction from movement. Two, it reframes the movement for people. Yeah. And three, it builds in a trust of that area of the body that it actually can go through ranges of motion and pretty intense and hard ranges of motion. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, yeah. And, and I, 
I've definitely heard the word before, but I've, if I'm being quite frank, I've never taken the interest enough to look it up what it means, you know. Um, I've never really had to, I've never actually had it laid out in that way, I'll say. Mm -hmm. You know, I've I've been to, you know, uh, massage therapy before and, you know, received treatments but then, you know, been given exercises and it's never really been laid out that way. Um, but now, now I'm going through the ones that I've been given and, you know, I'm labeling them now. Um, but most of them were, were isometric, actually. Um, kind of stretching out. Mostly like, like stretches, but certainly uh, one, one stretch. Uh, it was actually like a wall sit with, with a belt around my legs to, to help stabilize something inside my legs you know <laughs> it didn't have to be a, a move a, an isotonic yeah right it, it was more isometric because it wasn't about the movement um it, it was about just holding a challenging position yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it is it is challenging it is challenging <laughs> especially in the context of a waltz sit because regardless of like what your knees are going as far as like whether they're going like adduction which is going in or yeah. abduction going out just holding the wall is hard yeah i yeah. think abducts uh, abductors maybe was the word that was used abduction swing your leg out yeah yeah yeah, yeah maybe yeah yeah and it's a it's a pretty common exercise to be honest but you know a lot of the stuff that i do i like to frame outside of just physiological benefits because we could talk about the other effects of it which yeah. would be increasing muscular endurance size and strength mm-hmm but it's not that important for people who are in pain. If we're talking about muscle size and yeah. strength, then it's more so for performance. Although there can be a argument made for like certain demands put upon you from a sport or work perspective. Yeah. In which case, it's not necessarily for performance. It's just you need to live your life, and that's a big part of your life. Yeah. So there could be a blend of both. Um, but it's not necessarily, in my opinion the important thing the important thing is getting someone comfortable moving a particular area of their body more comfortably yeah 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 and working within their experience yes like Definitely. and that fear i like when you were talking about that fear response mm-hmm. um it was interesting to think about you know it, it might not even be as painful as they're perceiving it because they have that rush of adrenaline or, or fear or anxiety or whatever it is mm-hmm. that that fear is triggering. And because of that, they're already, I guess, not ready for it. Yeah. They're not ready to do that, to commit to that. And so kind of what it sounds like is working around that and saying, okay, well, we'll do something that's similarly beneficial mm-hmm. if that more beneficial and it'll be just discomfort rather than the actual pain that you're fearing right yeah um and the other part of it too is uh when i do stuff like this it's usually in the context of an assessment first so one of the things that i used to do back in the day before i started like looking into a lot of like rehabby stuff and i was just going off of like the base knowledge what you learn in school um, it would be like a normal assessment, getting people to move through ranges of motion. So you'd find what hurts and then you would move like directly into like a uh, massage or a treatment style and then give them exercises to do at home afterwards. Okay. I found that's not that beneficial because if you don't get them to perform the actions during like when you find things that or find, find movements that flare things up, then they might just not do the exercises at home because mm-hmm. they're afraid it's going to make it worse. But if you get them to do it in front of you, they notice a pain reduction and they can move mm-hmm. through a range of motion better. They're like, oh, duh, of course yeah, I'm going to yeah, do this. Yeah. Right? Um, it doesn't work like that that cleanly for everybody. But in general, that's what we try to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well, let, let me ask you this then. Yep. Um, thinking about that blended approach, performance and rehab and, you know, certainly you practice from that area, some sort of mishmash, depending on your client of course yeah exactly um but uh, i'm wondering is there you know like for me 
you know, when, it, when I was re- receiving a, a treatment, I inquired into what exercises I could be doing extra. I, I, I wanted to improve. I wanted to commit. I know that not everybody has that same mindset mm-hmm. and kind of, again, that expert patient relationship where whatever you say is what you say and they take that and go rather than going that extra step. Oh, hey, doc, why am I taking this medication? Right. What does this medication do? Mm-hmm. Right? Is there other medications outside of this list that I could be taking? You know, that mentality and applying it to this, you know, I wonder, I guess we're getting that to my question, is there, you know, general um, rules that people could apply to their own exercise to take benefit from these isometric exercises? Yep. Um, Okay, so I'll divide my answer into two answers sure okay (laughs) (laughs) um if you are someone who is in pain yeah and you're coming from it or you're coming from your this mindset of i want to reduce my pain not you don't really care about performance right now you just want to feel better sure find something that hurts like a range of motion or it could be even like a daily activity like you don't even have to think of specific joint movements like you can think of like flexion extension just throw all that out just be like it hurts to lift my arms up overhead to grab stuff at the grocery store. It okay. hurts to sit down on the toilet. Mm. That's a rough one. Yeah. Uh, been there. <laughs> if uh, if you find something that hurts, yeah. try and see how far you can move into that range of motion before the pain gets really bad. Okay. Like, just a minor discomfort. Yeah. At that point, apply a some sort of resistance to that area moving into that direction. So I'll use the example um, of a push-up. Okay. So since we went there already, let's, sure. let's continue the sure, trend. Sure, sure. So imagine you're doing a push-up and you're at the bottom position. That's your starting position. So your chest is touching the ground. Yeah. And you push all the way up so you're fully extended. And that hurts. Like, a lot. Yeah. Move yourself back down and push up until the point where it starts to hurt. Hold it. Okay. Hold that position. And then lower yourself. Don't go all the way through extension. Gotcha. And that would be... The isometric. Actually, that would be a combination of both. That sure. would be like a paused push-up. Yeah. Or yeah. I I, I think I've I've done that before. The the push-up into a plank, where typically you would do when you know if you're thinking about it from a performance perspective, when you do a, a that push-up into a plank, it's it's meant to be the full push-up. Yeah. Then a full plank for however long, and then. Right. Uh, not something that I often engage in, but, right. you know, I, I have heard of that before. So I guess then it's about that recognition of when it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess, I, you know, I'm going to, I'll let you get to the second part in a second, Matt, but I, I want to add to that. At what point would you recommend somebody stop pushing? Like absolutely should stop pushing. You know, if, if they're they're okay with that uncomfortableness mm-hmm. and they've got that drive to kind of push a little bit into the pain, is that going to be beneficial? Is there a certain amount they should do? I, I guess, you know, just general ideas, man. Okay. So usually it depends on the person's mindset towards sure. activity. Um, and it comes down to coping styles. If you're an endurance coper and you're yeah. someone who is like usually pretty athletic, those are like the really athletic performance types. Okay. And you're like, I don't care if it hurts. I just want to get better. So I'll do whatever. I don't care. Yeah. Um, then I'll try to put a hard limit on it. I'll say like, okay, so I know that like the pain doesn't bother you, even though it's pretty painful. Yeah. Um, instead of our goal of always trying to do that a fully extended push up, even though it hurts, Instead, I'll reframe a goal. I'll say, try and hold that pause position that's uncomfortable for like five more seconds each time you do it. And once you get up to like some arbitrary number, let's say they start and 20 seconds is already too hard. Um, Maybe if we can get to like 45 seconds eventually, let's push it past that. And then at some point, that's like a transient goal too. Like on the way to get to 45 seconds, of just as an example, they could feel... 100% 100% better yeah. in which case we would just say okay you don't need to hold it for 45 seconds anymore you can yeah. just do the full push-up yeah. but right now worst case scenario we're going to try and add some seconds each time until we get to this number that's going to be really challenging yeah um and so that's one side that's like the endurance coping side yes if you're coming from the other side where you're very worried about pain and you feel like the discomfort is too much even holding it for like a second 
don't even do the full push-up. Don't even do half a push-up. Literally apply pressure with your arms to the ground while your chest is on the ground as if you feel like you were about to do a push-up. Mm, okay. It still sure. engages the musculature at a very low degree, but it's still challenging enough for you. Maybe not physiologically, but mentally. And yeah. that could be enough for now. Yeah. Um, I like that. But yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how I would do it for uh, individual people um, if they feel like they're pushing too much or if they're not pushing enough. It, it really depends on where they're coming from as a person. Sure. Um, that's why I tend not to focus so much on the physiological aspects or benefits of these exercises because alternatively I could just say, well, you're building muscular endurance either way, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. But then it's not taking the person's story into account, which we know, Rogerian theory, yeah, yeah, yeah. we have to. Yes, yeah, <laughs> um, Or we should be. We should be. In our yeah. opinion. Yes. In our well-educated researched opinion. That's right, yeah. In our evidence-based <laughs> opinion, yes, we should be listening to people and considering their story as one of the main mm. drivers of treatment. Mm, empathetic, imagine. Mm, imagine if that works. Imagine. Um, <laughs> okay, so we kind of went off on a tangent a little bit, but I answered one part. Oh, yes, the second part, yes. What was I saying? <laughs> well, I, I, I imagine that you were heading into the performance part. Right, the of, performance part. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we talked about isometrics from the rehab perspective, approaching it from a pain perspective, and uh, when I would start to incorporate it into... Or some general rules for anybody who wanted to practice it, say. Right, okay. Um, if you're going at isometrics for a performance standpoint, I wouldn't necessarily only do isometrics in isolation unless it was a very specific exercise so example if you want to train your abs a plank is fine okay sure. uh, that type of thing yeah but what i really like to do is incorporate like isometric holds within isotonic movements yeah and the reason why is because it allows for a sense of graded exposure into th uh, positions that could be maybe not as strong or maybe even um like we're trying to change someone's form in something. So a perfect example would be like a squat. Yeah. So when you're squatting, if you're squatting really heavy, most people fail reps right out of the bottom position. So yeah. they're going down and their hips, like the crease of their hips goes past the top level of their knees. Yeah. We're breaking past 90 degrees. Yeah. And then a little bit coming out of the hole, if it's heavy and they're fatigued, that's usually where they fail. Okay. So one thing you can do as an isometric uh, hold within that range of motion is lighten the weight, go down, and pause at that position for like a few seconds. Beyond the 90, you mean? Yeah, like right in the most vulnerable position because gotcha. it's that transition that's really weak. Gotcha, okay. And okay. so it allows you to get more comfortable staying in that position. And then the transition isn't as hard when you transition back to like your normal sets and you're just doing a straight range of motion. It feels mm -hmm. a whole lot easier. That makes sense, yeah. Um, okay. Other stuff that you could do is like... Well, actually, that's probably my favorite way of using yeah. it for performance. Honestly, it's just that type of thing. Now, the other thing is what, what we talked about before is with smaller movements like uh, planks. Yeah. Or there's an exercise called a paloff press, which is like almost like a plank, but for your obliques. You're holding a, uh, like a resistance and it's trying to pull you either left or right. And you're trying to resist that. You're trying to stay neutral. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing any of those exercises. I just find that... If you're someone who has been training for a while, and I'm coming at this from the perspective of somebody who maybe is already training and has been training for a while, yep. um, isometrics aren't necessarily the best bang for your buck performance-wise because it eliminates an entire range of motion. Sure. It just loads a specific one. Mm, okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine if you were playing hockey and you're trying to develop your slap shot. Yeah, yeah. But your coach got you to hold this, like the wind-up position, <laughs> yeah, and hold sure. that under resistance yeah, instead yeah. of doing slap shots. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, no but you just swing at the puck and you miss because you haven't practiced the, the yeah, actual exactly. rest of the range of motion. So that would be the priority. But instead, if your coach said, "We want you to develop some of the musculature specifically in the shoulder." to develop your slap shot and yeah. they got you to do those like paloff presses or like maybe got you to do shoulder press but pause at the bottom position which is yeah. the most vulnerable and that sort of stuff is yeah. great but overall i prefer isometrics for rehab yeah but if you were to work them into a full range of motion it could be great for performance sure yeah that makes sense yeah i'm picturing like if you had an injury in hockey you know, almost almost holding the stick up in that slap shot position, maybe putting weight at the end of the stick. That could be cool. Yeah. 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 That could be good for rehab. Boom. Isometric rehab. 
right? I did it. <laughs> or you could like get them to push their hockey stick into like a wall and hold that, oh. and that way it's like actually loading that first. I like up. mine better. But yeah, that's true. Yeah, you more know. creative. You're not the expert, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to say. Um, uh, client's perspective is important, right? Um, but yeah, no, that's really interesting, and I, I guess it's really interesting from the perspective of you know getting that understanding of the difference. And the benefits of both mm-hmm. uh, in those different settings. And uh, I, I would imagine that you probably, yeah, well, you said, well, you said that you use it mostly in rehab yeah. um, settings. So most of your practice, I guess. Yeah. And then, you know, if someone's been seeing me for a while, eventually we'll need to like move that needle from purely rehab into, I mean, I keep saying performance, but it could just be like normal life stuff. <laughs> sure. Like, uh, if, again, sure. I'm somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, I want the normal life stuff, man. Right, yeah. If if somebody has trouble reaching up overhead and we do that isometric and then that feels better in that position and then when they reach up, there's still pain but it's lessened, then maybe after a certain amount of time we'll probably incorporate actual shoulder press. Yeah. Actually, like, full range of motion. Gotcha. Um, We're not always just going to stay in the isometric lane for rehab. Again, it's like a spectrum. We'll eventually have to move closer to building things back up to being very specific with what's bothering them. And usually most people are coming to me for real-life stuff. And usually real-life stuff doesn't entail holding a loaded position for long periods of time. Sure. Um, Unless you're, like, maybe a pipe fitter and you have your arms up overhead for long periods of time. Maybe. But, Yeah. uh, yeah, outside of that... Yeah. yeah, usually it's for normal stuff like sitting down, standing up, kneeling, walking, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, cool. Yeah, cool. yeah I hope that was valuable for everybody at home. Yeah, hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, if you'd like to hear more episodes like this, feel free to reach out and let us know. Um, I was telling Matt earlier, I enjoy it because it helps me uh, freshen up on you know some of my stuff. You know, yeah. Yep. Do a little prep for the podcast and helps me. So um, I have to say I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, no, it was good. Yeah. All right. All right, take care. And adios. Mm-hmm.